0: This is book 28 for my 2021 reading list, and this is the first of three volumes for the Civil War series. Well, I live in Franklin, Tennessee. I live about a half a mile from a battlefield, and I live about two miles from the downtown Franklin area, which on November 30th, 1864, was the scene of a brutal Civil War battle that took nearly 10,000 lives. It, a lot of it ended up being hand-to-hand combat, and they said the dead littered the the battlefield so much that you could walk across the battlefield and never actually hit the ground. You would just be walking on bodies the entire time. I remember when I was a kid, my my dad was reading the Battle Cry of Freedom book, and and uh, I just always thought it was interesting to that that was a huge book f- for me to see him reading this huge book. And uh, I also remember when I was young, catching parts of the Ken Burns documentary, and then just uh, for living most of my life in the south of the United States, just driving by different Civil War battlefields uh, at, at different points in my life and, and even visiting some. But I've never read anything that is solely focused on the Civil War. So this is really the, my first dive into the, to the Civil War. For for a little further background on me, I grew up in the North, and I grew up in Minnesota. And when I was 14, we moved to the South, to Atlanta, Georgia. And it was there that I first thought, oh wow, the the Civil War is still a thing. Uh, People still talk about it here. And they don't call it the Civil War, they call it the War of Northern Aggression. And now I work with a bookstore in downtown Franklin, and a lot of the customers who come in are tourists, and they come in and they're looking for Civil War-related material. And so, uh, in, in working at this bookstore and working with this bookstore, I've I've seen the Shelby Foot series since I've I've gone into that bookstore, and I've I, I've always heard good things about it. So I've I've wanted to read it for a while, and uh, just wanted to share some of that background in, information just to let you know that this is really my first exploration into the Civil War, my first foray of sorts, and uh, and and I I hope it's one that leads to further study, and so I, I'm I'm viewing it as as. Or I'm hoping to get a, a broad overview of the Civil War, with with to then be able to go deeper into different areas of it. Uh, just kind of having that broad overview first. Uh, so in in reading it that way and in going about it that way, I know I'm going to miss a lot, but uh, I, I know going forward this this kind of grand s- sweep of the of the Civil War will help me to dig into to other areas that I want to learn more about. And then also just uh, as I'm around the South and, and around even Tennessee and Nashville, just to, to be able to, to look at, at areas, to look at battlefields and, and and have a better idea of how that fit in with the whole, the whole war. So as for stats for this book, it took me 37 hours and 43 minutes to read it. I read it between July 18th and August 15th of this year, 2021. That averaged 28 pages per day, and that is the the lowest of any of my books this year, but the pages are huge. And uh, I'm also, I'm consulting a map as I'm reading this. So I I cleared uh, part of my bookshelf to to lay out this huge Civil War map. And so I'm, I'm looking at that. Uh, there's some maps within this book. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on those. Underlining a lot, taking a lot of notes in the book. Um, and so it, it's it's taken a while. I'm I'm, I'm taking it rather slowly, uh, but but uh, it's been it's been worth it. So this book, the volume one, this one covers the first two years of the war, so 1861 and 1862. So it does not get to the Battle of Franklin that uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Uh, that that I believe will be in the in the third book. But this book it starts with Jefferson Davis who becomes president of the Confederacy, which is the the South. Uh, he becomes a president, but it, it starts with him rising. In, in Congress to, to say that he is leaving, and he is b- bidding farewell to his, his fellows there because his state, Mississippi, has seceded from the Union, and he, he is no longer a representative for his state for the Union because they have his seceded. So that's, that's where this book starts out, and uh, it quickly moves to the first battle, which takes place in Charleston at Fort Sumter. And at that time, Fort Sumter is held by the Union, and, and that first battle drives them out. So this episode will consist of two more segments. In the next segment, I'll share some things that stuck out to me and and uh, also talk a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. In the final segment, I'll share the one thing, my one key takeaway from, the, from this first volume of Shelby Foote's Civil War series. Well, just a quick note. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so by helping me purchase books for my 2022 reading list. Yes, I already have it chosen. I have the 52 books that I want to read next year, and it would help me out greatly if uh, if you would be interested in, in purchasing any of those. So, I'm going to link in the show notes. I created an Amazon wish list, and you can go right there. It's the version that I'm that I, I would like to read, and uh, you can just go there and and purchase a book for me, and it'll be sent directly to me. Man, that would make me happy and uh, that would really help out this project. And now back to the book. I'm going to read a paragraph, I think, that that gives some of the horror of, uh, of, this, of this war. Here goes. And so it was that the same cavalry colonel found himself and his regiment alone in the hilltop next morning at dawn, with only a skirmish line of infantry left for show, while the rest of the army followed the road to Harrison's landing. A mizzling rain had fallen before sun- daylight, and mist blotted the lower slope from view, He could see nothing down there, but out of the mist came a babble of cries and wails and groans from the wounded who had managed to live through the night. After a while, the sun came out, and when it burned the mist away, he saw a thing he would never forget and never remember except with a shudder. Down there on the lower slope, the bodies of 5,000 gray-clad soldiers were woven into a carpet of cold or agonized flesh. A third of them were dead or dying, he later wrote, but enough of them were alive and moving to give the field a singular crawling effect, end quote. That, uh, the he being spoken of there is McClellan, and he was a Union, uh, he was in charge of the Union Army for a while, and that is his recollection of, of what happened And he is on a hilltop at this point. It's the day after a battle. And he's looking down at 5,000 Confederate soldiers. Many of them are dying. And as they're crawling around in their their death pangs, they look like a singular crawling effect. And he could not get that out of his mind for the rest of his life. It's hard to, to grasp the magnitude of the civil war, the the number of battles, the number of dead. And and in a book like this where where you just read about battle after battle, it 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 almost becomes it, it almost become becomes hard to just to to consider all that all all of it together. And so I, I, I thought I'd read just one one piece about one of the battles and just what this would have been like to the people at this time. They had no category for what had happened in the sheer numbers of what was happening. So here we go. This is about Shiloh. Total American casualties in all three of the nation's previous wars the Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War were 23,273 dead. Shiloh's, t- Shiloh's totaled 23,741, and most of them were grants. End quote. So in one battle, you have more dead than in all the other wars combined, just from one battle. So I want to go into a few things here that stuck out to me about the Civil War and about, uh, about how Shelby Foote writes about it in, in this book. So I'll just go through a few things and then talk about a few of the people involved. So first of all, the, what I quickly came to find out is that the study of the Civil War is a study of geography. You, uh, you, you have to understand the land, the rivers, the sea, how all these things tie together because you're not getting in a vehicle to go to the next location, you are walking. And if you're a Confederate soldier, uh, at any given time, there were between one sixth and one fourth of the soldiers without shoes. So you're not just walking, you're walking without shoes on whatever the, is, is the ground there. And you're not getting over a river because the other army has probably blown up the bridge that used to be there for you to cross that that river. And so you you just see how how much geography plays a part in, in this this war. And And of course, it, it always does. but but uh, to, to see to see how geography impacted where battles were fought, uh, how people, how the soldiers got there, um, the just the rain, the arrangements, how to make sure that you had enough supplies for where you were going to be. Uh, to study the Civil War is to study U.S. geography, and it's also to study how deeply connected the country was. So take the Mexican American War, the the United States they are fighting. They're fighting a foreign country. They, they don't know these people. They're, 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 they're fighting them. But in the Civil War, you see time after time, it's brother fighting brother. It's friend fighting friend. It's family member fighting family member. And I, I guess the the thing that really brought this home the most was to see how how many of the leaders, how many of the generals and other military leaders came from one place, West Point. And it starts at the very beginning. It starts in that first battle at Fort Sumter. And it's between Beauregard on the Confederate side, General Beauregard, and Union Major Anderson, who is holding Fort Sumter for the Union. The Confederate General Beauregard has Charleston's artillery pointed at Fort Sumter to get the Union out of there. Here's the thing. Major Anderson, who is holding the fort, was Beauregard's artillery instructor at West Point, so Beauregard, who is firing upon Anderson, is firing upon his his previous instructor, and not only just instructor, but instructor in artillery. So Beauregard is using the lessons he learned from from his teacher against him, and and this just comes up over and over. We've got another one in General Sykes, who is a Union a general for the Union, and he's getting attacked by Harvey Hill, a Confederate, and they were roommates at West Point. They were roommates, and now they're fighting against each other. And then another one later, uh, Rosencrans was, a, was, a uh, was with the Union, and in the class of 56, so 1856 at West Point, he was the fourth from the top in in terms of, of grades and, and that. He was classmates with Buck, Buck Van Dorn, a Confederate who was is fourth from the, from the bottom. And these guys were, were going against each other. And not only West Point, but just the, the other side of this is just the mingling that would go on between the, the soldiers themselves. So there, there are a few examples. I want to uh, highlight a, a couple of those. Uh, here's one. Sullen or friendly, spiteful or morose, men who had been shooting at each other a few hours ago now mingled on the field for which they had fought. End quote. So oftentimes these battles would would take place, and then uh, there somebody would raise the flag of truce, or uh, they'd they'd get the message across to 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 halt fighting for for a period, to where you could go onto the battlefield and and get the wounded, get them off the battlefield, try to get them some help. Uh, and, and while that was taking place, the the soldiers who had had just an hour before been firing at each other and and stabbing each other and and f- uh, hand-to-hand combat with each other are, are sitting there talking and laughing, um, and, and here, here's this one really put it into to play. This is about midway through the book. All in all, the situation indicated a sudden renewal of bloodshed. But this was the 4th of July, and what was more, the field was full of ripe blackberries. So, as one rebel private later remembered, our boys and the Yanks made a bargain not to fire at each other and went out in the field, leaving one man on each post with the arms, and gathered berries together and talked over the fight, traded tobacco and coffee, and exchanged newspapers as peacefully and kindly as if they had not been engaged for the last seven days in butchering one another." And then another uh, situation later on, where again the soldiers go out and mingle on the field. I, I remember uh, seeing a movie about uh, World War One, where Christmas, Christmas Day, the the I, I believe it was the German and the French, uh, they they decide to halt shooting at each other on Christmas Day, and they go out in the middle of this this snowbound field and uh, have drinks together, talk, um, and, and it's just such a it's it's like this picture of humanity amidst horror amidst amidst uh tragedy and and it's it it just is so amazing to read about and 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 especially with it being a civil war where you 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 do have there there's so many connection points like that where where they had gone to West Point together or they they were friends and now they're on opposite sides or somebody married someone from from the other side and Uh, the, the men of the families are now fighting each other. You just see this over and over and just how, how real that is, how, how, uh, how close everything was in this. Uh, it, it, it's really amazing to, to read about it in that. So that was a big thing that stuck out. The next thing was just the fact that there were so many naval battles. So going into this book, I thought I'd be reading about battles where the armies would be across from each other, and then they would just, you know, shoot at each other. Uh, so one line would shoot, a bunch of people would fall, then they shoot back, a bunch of people fall, and they just go like that. I mean, the, the, uh, if if any Civil War movies I've seen, that's that's kind of how it plays out. But what what actually happens? There's a ton of battles that take place either from the sea or on the sea or on rivers. And so there's there's a lot of of uh, sea battles. There's a lot of um, where boats are firing from the water onto land, and and that determines the battle. Uh, and then you get into these ironclad battles where. Um, at first, the, the, the ships are, are wooden, and then the Union has a, an ironclad, and it destroys this, this wooden ship that, that is kind of the best thing going at the time. And then the, the Confederates get, get an ironclad. And so now you've got metal on metal, and he, uh, Shelby Foote makes the statement that wooden navies were, were made obsolete in, in one day. this was an overnight change that up to that point, ships had been wood and now they're iron and it's a whole different ball game. And so you've got things like that happening in this war as well. Just technology or, or warfare methods of warfare. Uh, this change can just make something obsolete overnight. And so now you've got to, rush to start building these these ironclads so you can fight the other ironclads, and just how having that advantage, uh, even for a, for a few days, could could make a huge difference. Another thing that stuck out was uh, just the proximity between Washington, D.C., which is where, obviously, the, the White House was, where Lincoln was was situated, and that, the proximity to Richmond, where that was the capital of the Confederacy. It was just uh, between 90 and 100 miles away from each other. Another thing that stuck out was the number of lost chances on on both sides at the beginning of the war. at the, At the very first, uh, DC was pretty much unguarded. To where, it, from from what the way it was written about in this book, it, it's almost as if the Confederates could have just gone in and, and, and taken over DC, uh, but they didn't. And um, also, McClellan, the the in, in charge of the the Union Army, he he hesitated so many times and just had. Really good situations to where he could have, you know, if he had just gone in at, at first and and gone in strong, he he could have he could have decimated the the Confederate army pretty pretty quickly, and and you 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 see you you see that a lot in the in this book, just situations where that that could have had a an immediate impact and and maybe could have shortened the war, but out of fear or perhaps just not understanding how how deep this war and how long it was going to be uh, that ended up making it go a lot longer. also want to read um, Sherman's prophecy of the war. So Sherman known for going through Atlanta where I used to live and and burning it and then just going down all the way to the sea and kind of burning everything in his path to where a lot of parts of Georgia, there's there, there are no buildings past the, or, or before the civil war just cuz they were all they were all destroyed so here's here's sherman he's meeting with someone from the south sherman sherman is uh, a union and he's meeting uh, a friend from from the south and he says this you people of this of the south don't know what you're doing This country will be drenched in blood, and God only knows how it will end. It is all folly, madness, and a crime against civilization. You people speak so lightly of war, and you don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. You are bound to fail only in your spirit and determination. Are you prepared for war in all else? You are totally unprepared with a bad cause to start with. At first you will make headway, but as your limited resources begin to fail, shut out from the markets of Europe, as you will be, your cause will begin to wane. If your people will stop and think they must see that in the end, you will surely fail. End quote. So this is just, this is Sherman saying this to just to another individual, but, um, he, he makes his views known to more people, and this is what happens. So far, he had revised his opinion since the Christmas Eve in his rooms with Professor Boyd. Uh, Taking myself out of the quote for a minute, Professor Boyd is the the person he was talking to in in the previous quote. Now back in, that before the new year was out, he informed the Secretary of War that 200,000 troops would be required to put down the rebellion in the Mississippi Valley alone. And it must have gone to convince him even further of a lack of Northern awareness and determination when under suspicion of insanity, he was removed from command of troops for this remark, end quote. So Sherman says to the secretary of war, he says that you will need 200,000 troops just to put down the rebellion in the Mississippi Valley alone. They think he is so crazy. They, they think he is so out of his mind that it would take that many soldiers that they, they remove him from command because they think he's insane. And as you read on later, uh, it was well past 200,000 troops that were, that will, that would be needed. Sherman was right. Uh, if, if they had listened to him, you know, things, things probably would have been quite different. And instead they, they say he's insane. The last thing that stuck out, uh, is just kind of a funny thing, but the importance of facial hair. And I, I know you've seen the photos from the civil war, but show Shel- and Shelby Foote talks about it with like, with everybody of what their facial hair looked like and how that, was good for their, for their facial features and how it brought out certain things. And it's just, it's just really funny because you're reading about these wars and, 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 but the generals, they, they spent so much time on their facial hair. And, uh, I, I, I just, I got a kick out of that. A couple of people I want to highlight now that in terms of, of things that stuck out from this, this book, and the first is it obviously has to be Abraham Lincoln. He, he permeates uh, so many pages of this book and uh, with, first off, with the Emancipation Proclamation, which I'll get into in the next uh, segment here, but um, that, that covers so much of the book and had such a big impact on the war. And then the, the other thing about Lincoln, uh, they called him Honest Abe, and, and perhaps he was a little too honest because he, he said this to his wife Mary after the death of their young son, Willie. So here, here's the be, beginning of this, uh, of this section. He had the day-long, sometimes night-long occupation of running the country. She, his wife Mary, had nothing, not even Lincoln, who did not help matters by leading her one day to a window and pointing to the lunatic asylum as he said, Mother, do you see that large white building on the hill yonder? Try and control your grief or it will drive you mad and we will have to send you there. End quote good old honest Abe, telling his wife that uh, if, if she keeps with her hysterics after having lost her son, that he would send her to the lunatic asylum. Another kind of foreboding aspect of Lincoln is, well, with those problems with at home and the chaos of the war and being a president during the Civil War, his one area of relaxation was to go to the theater. And it's just kind of ironic as the theater is where he is later assassinated. Last thing I want to highlight in this section is Nathan Bedford Forrest. And I'm just going to read a section here. He comes up all the time. He's, he's kind of like the guerrilla warfare warrior of... of if you, you do have those lines going towards each other uh, in battle for some of these battles... Bedford Force is the guy that that's doing the surprise attacks. He's kind of flanking. He's going in. He's, he's feigning attacks. He's, uh, he's pretending to do things that he's not. He, he, he's rushing to another place where people do not expect him to be. And then attacking, he's keeping one guy up uh, like all, all night for many days, just doing it, like having different parts of his army attack to keep this guy in the, on the run. And, uh, so just a, a brilliant tactician, but uh, also a fearless leader. And, and so I want to read this, this one part here. And now this is speaking of Bedford Forrest. As he came out of the mass of dark blue uniforms and the furious white faces, clearing a path with his saber, he reached down and grabbed one of the soldiers by the collar, swung him onto the crupper of the horse and galloped back to safety using the Federal as a shield against the bullets fired after him. Once he was out of range, he flung the hapless fellow off and rode on up the ridge where his men were waiting in open-mouthed amazement. End quote. So Bedford Forrest goes in, uh, on this battle, and it's um, its pretty much him going into a sea of Union soldiers. He's on his horse. This this uh, this Union soldier goes right up to him, puts his gun right on his side, and and shoots Bedford Forest. The bullet lodges next to his spine. After that happens, he he goes pulls a Union soldier up from the ground by his collar onto the horse with him to use him as a shield because he's in the midst of all these people shooting and, and firing their guns at him. So after having been shot with a bullet next to his spine, he has this Union soldier in front of him taking all the bullets instead of him. And then after he rides out and gets away from, from these men shooting at him, he just throws the soldier off off the horse. And, I mean, it's it's like something out of a movie. So those were some of the things that stuck out to me about this first volume of the Civil War series. Now into segment three, and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. Well, it has to be the Emancipation Proclamation and what that did to to the war. So let me just read a few pieces here. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall be thus, that then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforward and forever free. That's the, the edict. And going on to the next page, we, we see that we read this. Yet behind these organs of opinion, below these men of influence, stood the people. In their minds, now that Lincoln had spoken out, regardless of what he actually said or left unsaid, support for the South was support for slavery, and they would not have it so. From this point on, the editors might favor and the heads of state might ponder ways and means of extending recognition to the Confederacy, but to do this, they would have to run counter to the feelings and demands of the mass of their subscribers and electors. With this one blow, though few could see it yet, least of all the leader most concerned Lincoln had shattered the main pillar of what had been the Southern president's chief hope from the start. Europe would not be coming in to the war end quote. So from the beginning, the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, his hope was that Europe would get on the war and it would get on, get in on the side of the South because his thinking was the union was blocking trade routes to Europe and Europe needed products from the South. They needed cotton. And so Jefferson Davis always had in the back of his mind, someday Europe is going to get on board, they're going to join us, and we are just going to annihilate the Union. Army, and we're going to win. One thing the Emancipation Proclamation did, as this says, is it equated support for the South with support for slavery. And Europe after that could not could not help the Confederate. They could, not, they could not be on the side of the Confederate. And this is one of the main reasons. And so by, by declaring slaves who were in the Southern states, the states that were in rebellion, by declaring them free without having the actual power to do so, Lincoln, by making that statement, it, it did other things. It, it put things on a moral level. It, it reached the conscience of people and it equated support for the South with support for slavery. So that was one thing that was really interesting about it. And, and, and the main thing I took away, the, the other side of the coin is just how deeply individual this Emancipation Proclamation was for Lincoln. This was not a committee thing. This was not, they, were, they weren't like writing it in a group at a table to, to make sure it sounded good to whoever was going to listen. This was Abraham Lincoln by himself, not talking to others about what he was doing, writing this out. He eventually shared it with a couple people very close to him, what he was doing. And then of course he, he shared it uh, with, with Congress and then he shared it with, with, with the people, but it was a deeply individual thing and a, uh, individual act for him and it just it, it makes you realize that history has some fortunate turns where the right person is is in charge at that time i mean, uh, you think of winston churchill as well but you 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 think of abraham lincoln here and just it, it took guts uh, the, not everyone was was for doing this uh, of stating that that all slaves were free. Uh, up until this point, there were a lot of different ways they were trying to maybe go about that., uh, this was a bold move, and it was done largely uh, on his initiative, which is a really incredible thing to think about., uh, this book is not a deep dive into Lincoln, so I mean he's he's throughout the book on different pages, but and uh, I, I know there's a lot more to dig into on on this side of it in the Emancipation Proclamation but uh, to see it uh, within the Civil War and to see it just happen almost dead center in the Civil War so it happens the first of the year in 1863 the the war started 1861 and goes to 1865. this is like in the middle of it and it in the impact is immediate and intense that was that was really something that 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 uh, that stuck with me and, and, and startled me. So I'm I'm into the the second book now. I'm a few hundred pages in. It is slow going, but uh, it's very interesting, and I'm really enjoying the parts uh, about near where I live. So with Franklin in, in Nashville, and the Union took this area pretty early in the war. And so in Franklin, that was it was held by the Union for for much of the war. And it, there was a mix of sympathies there as well. So you you had people who were pro-Union right in Franklin, just two miles from where I live. You had some that were uh, pro-Confederate. And it's it, it's easy now to look back and just think, well, they're from the South. They must have all felt this way. But as, as you read this book and, and dig deeper deeper into it and, and even see uh, how Shelby Foote accounts for the soldier level, like what, what was the soldier, the individual soldier, what were they thinking? What were they fighting for? And it, and it wasn't these, it wasn't necessarily these, these grand ideas. Sometimes it was just for the sake of adventure to, to get out and, and, and fight. Uh, Sometimes it was, it was for their family or for, for their area that they, that they were fighting for. And it's not just this clear cut this way or that way. Uh, the, the, the more you dig in. So just an interesting study. As I mentioned, an interesting study of, of the geography of the United States, of these battles, of these men who were friends at West Point now fighting each other using the lessons they learned at West Point from their instructors to then fight their instructors. Just mind-blowing stuff in, in this war and just such a close-knit war with people from the same nation, sometimes the same families fighting each other. I want to close out reading, uh, on the last, from the last page of this book. And this is from a December 1st, 1862 message to Congress. Uh, Abraham Lincoln did not give this. He, he wrote it out and it was read. So, so these are Lincoln's words, but he did not speak them. But, uh, You've probably heard some of these. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. Other may, means may succeed. This could not fail. The way is plain peaceful, generous, just, a way which, if followed, the world will forever applaud and God must forever bless. End quote. Well, this book covers a, a it's a good overview of the war, uh, this series by Shelby Foote. Uh, if you do read it, get a map. I, I bought a map on Amazon. It's its uh, a pretty good sized map. It just shows all the different battle locations. It shows them in order at, at the bottom so you can, you can see uh, who, who was the victor, uh, how many casualties there were. Um, and then, and then you can, you can kind of follow on, along on that map. Uh, if you get the Shelby Foot books, there's also maps all over these books as well. Um, and it looks like uh, ones that he drew or, or somebody drew. And so there's, there's some in the front and the back of the book, but then also just throughout as you're reading about different battles, there, there's just these hand-drawn maps of, um, of the battles. And, what, uh, where each general was, and in uh, different features of of the land, but um, that that really helps to to understand what what you're reading. I mean, there's so many names, there's so many locations, so many battles that just having a kind of a mental picture of where all this stuff is happening is is really helpful. I also plan to start watching the Ken Burns series, the documentary about the Civil War. I didn't want to do it before this episode. I just didn't. I didn't want it to impact what I said here because I wanted what I said to come from from what I had read, uh, but I think the Ken Burns series will will help me uh, just to not get so lost at, when I'm reading, of uh, remembering people. Maybe if I see their face, maybe if I see uh, photos of, of where the battle took place, and um, and just kind of have that reinforce what I'm reading. I think that'll help me help me to to better understand this book because I, I do find myself getting. Uh, bogged down and then just uh, having it be hard to, to remember what's what's going on at, at different plate at different times the other thing I plan to do is is just um, go to some of the battlefields and um, maybe do some of the Civil war tours in Franklin Tennessee as as I get to that point in the book and and, and I, I hope that helps me to remember it as well. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. Let me know what you thought about uh, this this episode, or um, if, if you've read the Shelby Foot series, I'd, I'd love to hear from you and, and what you thought of the series. If if you would like to support the podcast, you can now do that. You can help me purchase my books for my 2022 reading list. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter and go to the website, which is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in two weeks to discuss another book from, my, from this series or from uh, my 2021 reading list. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.